I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Every one of us experiences a kind of internal paradox. We do things we don't want to do, and we don't do things we want to do. Even so, popular culture imagines freedom as the ability to act on any given desire. But the scriptures know much of our desire by a different name, the flesh. In the spring of 1862, Emily Dickinson wrote a letter to console a friend who was missing her husband. And in it, she famously wrote, and I quote, the heart wants what it wants, or else it does not care. Now, I doubt, I didn't know Emily personally, but I doubt that she had any suspicion that this passing phrase, which if you read the letter, it shows up like two lines in, it doesn't seem like a huge thing, Um, She may not have known that it would become a kind of romanticized, half-baked life philosophy. Uh, When I looked on Thursday as I was writing, there were nearly one million Instagram hashtags for, and I quote, hashtag, do what makes you happy. Um, Some of them looked like this. I realized I should have censored the names, but oh well, let's forget about it. There they are. You don't know them, probably. (laughs) Never explain yourself to anyone. You don't need anyone's approval. Live your life and do what makes you happy. Roses. Um, (laughs) Others of them looked like this. I'm only going to bother you with two of them. Don't worry. Doing what you like is freedom. Liking what you do is happiness. (laughs) I love it. It's so good. And look at the just preponderance of hashtags over there. So many. Okay. Um, (laughs) These hashtags seem to involve, from just a cursory look, anything from fashion decisions, to workout routines, which is a big one I had no idea about. Um, Handbags was one of them. Uh, Romantic decisions, things like that. Uh, Here's that same idea summarized in some ridiculous wall art that I happened upon in a Target aisle. Look at this. Find your truth. Listen to your golden heart shape. Pave your own way. This life is yours to create. It's just like every trite platitude stuck on a wall. If you have that, I'm so sorry. Um... (laughs) (laughs) But really, uh, infamous occult guru Aleister Crowley summarized all of this much earlier in 1904 when he famously wrote, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And this is a motto that has influenced everyone from John Lennon to Jay-Z to Anton LaVey, who went on to write the Satanic Bible. And the idea is the same exact thing. Do what makes you happy. The heart wants what the heart wants. Um, In 1992, when the public learned that director Woody Allen had been involved in an ongoing affair with the adoptive daughter of Mia Farrow, Uh, Mia Farrow was also Woody Allen's lover and the mother of his son, Allen defended himself to Time Magazine with Emily Dickinson's words, saying this, I didn't find any moral dilemmas whatsoever. The heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. And he was talking about what was essentially his adoptive daughter. And what both Emily Dickinson and Woody Allen here describe as the heart, this library of writings that we call the Bible often mentions by another name, and that is the flesh. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. For weeks now, we've been in a series and a set of practices called Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. So there's been this ongoing 
complicated conversation around something we call the supernatural realm. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about a creature called the devil and, of course, spiritual warfare. But spiritual formation writers and thinkers often talk about what they call the three great enemies of the soul. And in that equation, the devil's only one of them. There's also the world, which is the kind of broken dimension of what you and I call culture. But tonight, we are going to begin to unpack the idea of the flesh. You guys up for it? You all right? That or is it woo? Lexi, you did the woo. Thank you. So, was that your woo? Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, I feel so encouraged. All right, look down at Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read beginning with the first verse. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made alive with Messiah Jesus, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Now, notice here that Paul, the author of this letter, is actually wrestling with the idea of all three enemies of the soul. He says, you followed the ways of this world. He talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, that, of course, being the devil. And he also mentions the way in which these new disciples of Jesus were previously in their lives, quote, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. This is actually where the early church developed its thinking around the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And much like the terms world and devil, this idea of the flesh is a tremendously complicated one, and I would argue it is a often misunderstood one. In Greek, the word is sarx. Now, Greek is similar to English in that uh, as singular words often have multiple meanings. In English, this is called a homonym, so words like bear or check or watch can mean several wildly different things even though they look and are spelled the same way. So in Greek, the word sarx can mean one of several things. It can be a term that describes the human body. You get this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when it says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Here, flesh is a synonym for the actual body of a human being. In its plural form, it can act also, the same word can describe all of humanity. You get this in Luke chapter 3 when it says, and all people will see God's salvation. Now that word translated as people there is flesh. Same thing in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. All people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. In both cases, people is actually flesh. Elsewhere, it actually denotes a kind of ethnicity. You get this in Philippians chapter 3. It says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God in His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh meaning the Jewish ethnicity. But none of these definitions apply to Paul's use of the flesh in our passage this evening. Interestingly, here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls the flesh our, quote, cravings. In Romans chapter 7, he describes it as our sinful passions. And in 1 Peter, the flesh is corrupt desire. New Testament scholar Timothy George defines the flesh this way. Flesh refers to fallen human nature, 
the center of human pride and self-willing. Flesh is the arena of indulgence and self-assertion, the locale in which the ultimate sin reveals itself to be the false assumption of receiving life, not as the gift of a creator, but procuring it by one's own power of living from one's own self rather than from God. So it makes sense that earlier translations of the NIV, if you have one pre, I think 2011 was when it was updated, um, rendered the same word as, quote, sinful nature. Um, we might describe this idea of the flesh like this. The flesh is the base, animalistic, primal drive in us for self-gratification. And this is particularly manifest with things like sex and food and with pleasure in general, with survival, with power over other people, and so on. Now, maybe some of you, when you talk about it that way, notice that that isn't actually some crazy conservative fundamentalist Bible way of describing your human nature. Uh, evolutionary psychologists and atheist philosophers alike agree that on some base, deep brain level, we are all animalistic in nature. Something in us craves that do what thou wilt and that on an animal level. And so we crave and we consume and we eat and we have sex and we trample other people all in the ongoing primordial effort to satisfy some insatiable urge within us. And sure, there there are all sorts of nuanced and controlled aspects of that urge that enable us to do good things like succeed in life in a, in a good moral way or even to survive, you know, to maintain life, <laughs> while other dimensions of that same exact urge bring destruction to other people, to ourselves, to our relationships, and to our own lives. And to those dimensions of that urge, Paul and the authors of the New Testament point and they declare that is the flesh. But here's the thing, if you're at all familiar with the Bible or with church or with Christian-y talk, that's probably not news to you. I'm sure you've heard that before. And yet, this New Testament concept of the flesh is, I think, among the least popular, least appealing in any sense within this particular cultural atmosphere. And there are reasons for that. Bear with me while I do a, a brief kind of truncated historical thing here. Uh, believe it or not, one foundational thinker on the nature of human humanity and desire was actually a church father, someone called Augustine of Hippo or Augustine, he's often called. And Augustine argued that at the heart of the human condition was the problem of disordered loves, meaning that somebody would love food makes perfect sense on both like an ordinary and primal and evolutionary, however you want to describe it, that makes sense. But that a person would love food to the point of making their bodies and lifestyles unhealthy is a problem. And it's a problem to the point that people die as a result. It is a disordered love. So, in the Western world, we have been heavily influenced by Augustine's theory of rightly ordered desires, and we eventually learned that it was proper to say yes to certain desires and say no to other desires, so that we can maintain some sense of mental and emotional and physical health as individuals and as a society. So, at one point in the past, Western people would learn how to do this. They would learn that via upbringing. Your parents would teach you which things to say yes to and say no to. You'd learn that by the culture around you, a sort of shared sense of morality and value. You'd learn that from authorities in your life, teachers, pastors, whoever it might be. You'd learn it from a church community. You'd learn it from the Bible and on down the list. You had resources to learn that type of thing. But all that changed about a century or so ago 
when Sigmund Freud uh, radically disagreed with Augustine's take on bad desires. Um, Freud, who believed just like Darwin that humans are essentially animals, he argued that chief among human desires is the libido or the sex drive, but that we had been incorrectly taught by our parents, by culture, by authority, by the church to repress the libido rather than to gratify it. And that, he argued, Freud argued, is the source of all neuroses. Or put simply, when you say no to desire, according to Freud, you are unhappy as a result. Now think about that dichotomy for a second. On the one hand, you have Augustine, who argued that humans are made in God's image, but that when we allow our desires to become disordered, we suffer as a result. Now Freud, on the other end, argued that human beings are animals, compelled by instinct for pleasure, and that when we repress that instinct, we suffer as a result. The heart wants what the heart wants. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Hashtag do what makes you happy. Now, that last one is, of course, the primary creed of the Western world, especially in a place like the Pacific Nor Northwest. Um, not doing what you want to do, well, that's inauthentic. There are no hashtags for such a thing. Don't do what makes you happy, you know. Um, Cornelius Plantinga writes this, Oh, no, not that one. Save that. That's a big reveal. Don't, don't look at it. Don't look at it yet. Do you have a Cornelius Plantinga quote anywhere in there? It's a big one. I can just read it to him. No, no, don't make it, Allie. <laughs> don't make it up. <laughs> you got to love that ambition. Thank you. Thank you, but no. Um, <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get our minds right. Listen to this. This is really important. Cornelius Plantinga writes this. In an ego-centered culture, wants become needs, maybe even duties. The self replaces the soul, and human life degenerates into the clamor of competing autobiographies. People get fascinated with how they feel and with how they feel about how they feel. In such a culture and in the throes of such fascination, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed but not disciplined or restrained. Another theologian named David Wells wrote this. Do, is there a David Wells quote up there? Okay, then just listen to me once again. Theology in this kind of worldview becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness, holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself, the world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes. The church recedes. The world recedes. All that remains is the self. If you go to the movies tonight, here's where we were heading just a second ago, chances are you'll be made to endure this Diet Coke ad that the company has uh, circulating in pre-movie, the pre-movie lineup right now. And the Coke commercials are just always so dreadful before the movies. It's like, this is a fairly competent company, I'm sure, but man. And you know the student, this is, I've left the notes at this point. You know the student films that you have to watch before the movie, like, please enjoy our film. And you're like, these are the student films that you guys picked? What else was going on? Anyway, um, so Ken Cameron told me that I've brought this up multiple times, but here you go. 
Uh, so in the ad that's going around right now, there's two iterations of it. You have an actor, they're walking down the street, looking at a steady cam and talking uh, as people walk around by them. And they say uh, this, here's an actual quote. Here's the, th- here's the thing about Diet Coke. It makes me feel good. I mean, just do you, whatever that is. And if you're in the mood for a Diet Coke, have a Diet Coke. And the tagline reads, Diet Coke, because I can. <laughs> this is the best that they could do. And I find this, I have nothing you know, out for Diet Coke or anything like that. In fact, Coke is a Georgia company where I'm from, but I also feel no affiliation with Georgia either, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but I just find it really hilarious because it's essentially like Coca-Cola is conceding. They're like, yes, we know it's disgusting, but it beats being inauthentic. So if you have a desire to drink it, you might as well gratify that desire, even if it's for something as disgusting as a Diet Coke. It's like, I can do it, so I might as well do it. And that might sound like a silly fight to pick with something like Diet Coke, um, but isn't it interesting how normalized this ethic is? Always before you, at any given time, if you can do it and you want to do it, then why in the world are you not doing it? And of course, it runs positively contrary to the writings of the New Testament in which doing what you can do and what you want to do is often, not always, but often the most foolish, most destructive means of living. That is the flesh. And it is not a way to freedom, but to slavery and to death. The so-called authentic self, as we understand it in the cultural vernacular, is a fool ruled by their desire and ultimately undone by it. And this idea is further explored in Paul's letters. Let's look at one more of them before we end tonight. If you're still in Ephesians, just turn a few pages to the left to the letter before this one called Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. In context, Paul is writing about a a slave named Hagar who's been now set free, and now they have all this freedom to do whatever they want, and they're overwhelmed by it, so Paul starts to write about this concept of slavery and freedom. In Galatians 5, verse 1, he writes this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So pause, you're thinking, oh, there it is, hashtag do what makes you happy. But wait, he goes on, skip down to verse 13, where Paul begins to address two kinds of slaves, those in slavery to rules and those in slavery to freedom of all things. Look at verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, the Old Testament, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So this is interesting. Paul says that the opposite of self-gratification or the flesh is love. But this is obviously complicated because in our cultural climate, if you see love as a hashtag or on a bumper sticker or whatever it might be, it's almost impossible to divorce from the idea of sexuality, whom you are and are not attracted to sexually. But Paul is talking about something much more than that and something quite different than that. It's not a feeling. It's not an attraction. It's not an emotion. Love, in this context, is an act of the will to value another person and their good over and above your own, 
even and especially at great personal expense to yourself. Now, your flesh will never want to do that naturally. That will never come organically. It will never just be what you want to do out of your personality. It doesn't ensure survival, for one thing. In fact, often it does the opposite. It actually violates your base primal desire to gratify yourself, and it asks a lot of you. It's hard work to do that. The flesh is lazy and self-centered. So Paul goes on, verse 16. So I, Paul, say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So, listen, you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Inside you wages the ongoing arm wrestle, the existential tug of war, the kind of soul boxing match. The flesh wants to gratify the self, satisfy desire, feed off of other people at expense of other people. But the Spirit of God, who is also alive and at work in every single disciple of Jesus, wants to self-sacrifice, to love and to serve other people faithfully, which is why Paul blatantly commands, you are not to do whatever you want. Now that is punk rock, in flagrant defiance of the Instagram Diet Coke world in which we live. And here's why, verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen, don't read this so much as like some kind of threat about heaven and hell. Read this as a sobering warning about the here and now. Jesus has in mind for his apprentices life to the fullest, in his own words, here and now and in the age to come, the inbreaking kingdom of God. But when you are ruled by the flesh, you forfeit the beauty of life for a life ruled by selfish destruction. If the flesh is your master, then you are by definition not an apprentice of Jesus, but of your flesh. Let's keep reading, verse 22. But, listen, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now this is the soul, the lifeblood, the family, the, the children, the community, the work, the words of the one who operates in the Spirit rather than the flesh. They know love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, and, of course, self-control. So then the question remains, what do we as disciples of Jesus do then? And Paul answers, verse 24, those who belong to Messiah Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is the answer to the question. The flesh destroy it, kill it, nail it to a wooden execution stake. Absolutely do those things and instead pursue the Spirit at all times. Verse 25 goes on to say, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Continue, in other words, to live by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. 
So look at this emphasis that you're getting throughout this text. You have these sorts of reminders, or, or maybe you don't. I'm sorry, Allie, I've done quite a poor job with the slides this evening, but that's okay. Oh, no, they're there, okay. So you have walk in the Spirit in verse 16, be led by the Spirit in verse 18, live by the Spirit again, keep in step with the Spirit. See, for Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, many of us wholly misunderstand the true nature of the ideas of freedom and slavery, which are still uh, con topics of conversation on a regular level in our day and age. See, in modern Diet Coke philosophy, freedom is an allowance, meaning you are free to do something. Drink Diet Coke, in other words, because you can, or buy things, or have sex, or say whatever you want, or believe whatever, or do whatever. You do you. And the only disqualification seems to be the totally subjective and ambiguous, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, who cares? But in the New Testament, freedom is largely in the context of being released from internal oppression, meaning freedom is less about freedom to and more about freedom from. You have been set free from the power of the devil and of your own desire. But of course, uh, of course, such a notion is archaic and antiquated in today's vernacular. And if the Diet, quote, Diet Coke, <laughs> you do you creed is freedom, well, then the opposite of freedom in that whole uh, worldview is disciplined self-restraint. That's the opposite of freedom. That's bad. And I honestly hear that kind of talk all the time from like the, the whole post-Christian circles of, man, you choose to persist in these old methods of belief, the things that you've been taught, what your parents believed, you're in bondage, man. Or my friends, some of my close friends uh, who are disciples of Jesus, attracted to members of the same sex, but choose to practice celibacy. People say to them, you are being oppressed, you are enslaved. And this kind of uh, ideology actually masquerades, albeit in an altered form, in Christian circles as well, where this mangled interpretation of freedom in Christ becomes a gracious permission slip to have sex outside of God's context or to get stoned or get drunk once in a while or just to be flaky and non-committal and not show up and you just say, hey, freedom in Christ, man, freedom in Christ. Because we have been taught that self-denial is slavery, with uh, Freud, with Woody Allen, with Aleister Crowley, self-denial is slavery because when freedom becomes redefined, slavery is inevitably reshaped with it. But in the scriptures, slavery is the bondage that compels one to do things they don't want to do. In Exodus, it's making bricks for Pharaoh, for example, slavery. But it could also be addiction to pornography or sleeping around or shopping all the time, or the inability to put your phone down, whatever, it's slavery. All of you know what it means to do something that you do not want to do. That is not a foreign concept to any of us. That kind of psychological dilemma, a contradiction of desires and of the will, and it can be a really small-scale offense, uh, you know, something like, man, I shouldn't have stayed up so late, I'm paying for it today. Or it could be something like, man, I'm sorry I said that rude thing, I didn't actually mean that when I said it. Or it could be something quite big, like an addiction or an affair. We have all experienced the cravings of the flesh, and we have all experienced the fallout of our forfeit to it. Psychologist Gerald May says it like this. Or he doesn't. I'm sorry. I'm like, wow, I wonder what was going on. 
Oh, you're, you're trying to guess what it was I was doing? <laughs> There's a lot of running theories. Who knows, you know? Um, okay, so psychologist Gerald May says it like this. Regardless of how a compulsion appears externally, underneath it is always robbing us of our freedom. We act not because we've chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things, people, beliefs, behaviors, not because we love them, but because we are terrified of losing them. In a spiritual sense, the objects of our attachments and addictions become idols. We give them our time, energy, attention, whether we want to or not, even and often especially when we are struggling to rid ourselves of them. We want to be free, compassionate, happy, but in the face of our attachments, we are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. This is the root of our trouble, and it is slavery. Few of us, or I dare say none of us, want to be consumed with materialistic greed, and yet we go on, purchase after purchase after purchase, things we don't need and that will not make us happy. You don't want to squander hours of your life on the meaninglessness of Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or your phone, and yet you keep reaching for it. You did not want to tear your marriage and your family apart, and yet you climbed into someone else's bed. This kind of falling on the sword of our desire is, now, is not how we typically imagine slavery. In fact, by and large, slavery has been redefined to include anything that prevents you from doing whatever the heck you want. A parent, a tradition, a church, a pastor, a social norm, a politician, a gender role, the Bible, God, anything that encumbers your ability to do what you want to do. So all of that to say, much of what our culture calls freedom, the New Testament calls slavery. And much of what the New Testament calls freedom, our culture calls slavery. But the truth is that pleasure is not the same thing as happiness or joy. And this really is a conversation about what makes you happy. Because pleasure is about a temporal dopamine hit of satisfaction and on to the next. It is by nature fleeting. But joy is a cultivated sense of stability in who you are and who God is and how one lives as a result. Pleasure is about what you want. Joy is about freedom from what you want. So the disciples of Jesus embark on the lifelong work of crucifying the flesh, not entertaining or placating or coddling every desire that comes up. Instead, we cultivate, nurture, develop the things of the Spirit. The things of the flesh, on the other hand, we nail to a stake and leave for dead again and again and again. And again, and on that same stake hangs the mantra of the flesh. The heart wants what the heart wants. Leave it for dead, left to rot with the rest of the flesh. And then you will be free, free to walk in step with the Spirit, free to nurture and develop the aspects of you that are not bent out of shape by the flesh. And that's important. Not all of you is inherently horrible, regardless of what you may have been told at one point. Remember, you are actually made in God's image, and God has distinctly wired you for all kinds of good. So some of you are, are by God's design, uh, kind by nature. 
or you are artistic, or you're clever, or you're organized, thank God for you, or you're compassionate, or you're mathematical, or whatever it might be, you are wired by God to do good things. So not all of you is bad, but listen, all of you, even the good stuff, can be led away to evil by the flesh. And the flesh is that aspect of you that is broken and bent out of shape. And in that context, kindness becomes manipulation. And artistry becomes destructive. And cleverness becomes greed. And organization becomes perfectionism, which is bad to be clear about that. And on and on that list goes. These good things become perverted by the flesh. So the idea is that this week you'll get together with your community or a group of friends if you're not yet in a community and head to practicingtheway.org slash fighting for the next practice. Now, for weeks, these practices have been about something called spiritual warfare, which is simply a term that describes the way we do battle against the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this week's practice is about fighting the flesh with something called the confession of sin which is more than simply apologizing to God in your mind, which is right and good. You should do that. But confession is about when we, in humble openness, share even our own brokenness with our community. Not just the, the wrong things that you do, but the way in which your desires have become disordered. And that same community receives you in grateful love, knowing that they themselves have also been led astray by the flesh. We're all in this together. And the beauty is that confession has nothing to do with like admitting how awful you are. Instead, it's about dragging a kicking, screeching thing out of the darkness where it thrives and into the light where it shrivels and dies. So the idea is that you are taking the flesh by the nape of its awful neck and through gritted teeth you're saying, you're coming with me and as the family of God looks on it with kindness and compassion for the one who brings it, then like a salted snail it begins to hiss and shrink and withers away. Many of us don't have a healthy relationship with confession, and that makes perfect sense. It seems strange, outdated, or Catholic, or whatever it might be. But the New Testament actually teaches that confession is about the redemptive healing of your soul. It's about freedom. I think of that line from James chapter 5 that says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, at one point in my life, I read that line and I thought that it was about God withholding something, you know, like he's not going to heal you unless you admit how bad you are first. But now I actually see that confession itself is the agent of healing. Confess so that you will be healed by your confession. Ask someone who has wandered into a church basement and stood up in front of a group of people broken just like them and said, I'm an alcoholic. Like any illness... The flesh thrives when it is unaddressed. It can only be treated and dealt with and healed when it is acknowledged, dragged out into the open, into a gracious and forgiving community. And then we, together, walk in the Spirit, are led by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit as we crucify the flesh. Thanks for listening to Van City. 
You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.